Puck is dropped. Callahan has it. Callahan turns and shoots. It's blocked by the stick of light. Hangs into the far corner. Up the boards, Gabbert with 12 seconds. Out to the point, Delzato. Delzato shoots it blocked. Cuts in front. Callahan with a chance. It's stopped. Rebound. Score! 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 With 6.6 seconds remaining, the Rangers tie the game at two on the power play. It is May 22nd, 2012 in beautiful Buffalo, New York. We are the Sportscasters. I am the host, Steve Bennett. My co-host is my good buddy, Don Russ. What's up, Don? Not much. What's going on? It is uh, Season 2, Episode 20 today. Uh, Like I said, May 22nd, 2012. We have a great show lined up for you today. Kenny Albert, who we just played the clip off the top, is going to join us. Talk to us about the Rangers and the Devils series, the NHL playoffs in general. Uh, Kenny's been on with us twice before, and we always get Kenny at great times. Last time we had Kenny, he was on right after he had called the phenomenal Saints and 49ers playoff game. Oh, that's right, yep. You know, and he's on with us today in the middle of this, what is proving to be a really good Eastern Conference Finals between the Rangers and the and the Devils. They're tied at two right now, getting ready for game five. So we're going to talk to Kenny Albert about a couple things. One, he has a broadcast on the New York Rangers radio network, but he also has been calling playoff games nationally for, for the NBC Sports Network. Right. And I want to ask Kenny what it's like to kind of transition from a kind of a home Homer? broadcast right, where you right. can be a little home, Homer-ish if, if you'd like to a uh, national right down the middle broadcast. Right. Well, Doc Emmerich's in the same situation, I imagine, too, because he right, does the NBC Sports and, and Devils games. Devils, yep. Yeah, so that, it'll be interesting to see what Kenny has to say about that. Also, we've been kind of joking in the past that we're only going to call him TAS because it's ass with Tass, an A. Right, or right. T, right. Or ass with a T, of course. Uh, but I, I learned it, Don. Tass was last name? Mel- yeah. Mel- it's Mellis. Mellis. Yeah, just like Mel and S. Oh, okay. So it really wasn't that hard. No. I don't know why we were making it out to be. But <laughs> uh, uh, ass with a T, Mellis is going to be on the show to talk NBA playoffs with us. The Western Conference Finals are set. The Spurs and the Oklahoma City Thunder are going to start on Sunday. Don, do you know that when the Spurs play on Sunday... It's going to be the 30th day of the NBA playoffs, and they have, will have played eight days and had 22 off. Wow. <laughs> that's that's remarkable. That's being efficient. Yeah, I suppose that's so. That's how, when you're an older team, you make a good playoff run. Just, just win in four every time? You just time. win in four and then take a <laughs> bunch of days off and wait for everyone else to kind of sort it out. The NBA playoffs are going to, still going to have to sort things out in the eastern uh, side of things, but we'll talk with our buddy Tass about that. Are they going to start any games before the other series? Not, I don't think Not so this, this time. time. No. Strange the way they do that. Yeah, that is very strange. Well, I mean, I guess it could happen if a series goes seven, seven. maybe. Yeah. But uh, they have held the Western Conference Finals off until at least Sunday. That's good. Our last interview today is with Jeff Benedict, who is a contributor to SI. He's also an author. And he had the cover story on last week's SI about uh, – kid named Jabari Parker, who the magazine calls the best high school basketball player since since LeBron LeBron James. 
So we're going to talk to him about that article. So Kenny Albert, ass with a T, and Jeff Benedict on the show today. <laughs> also, we're going to update the book club, and we're going to tee up what is going to be a Father's Day book club book giveaway. We've got a whole stack of books in the corner we're going to tell you about we're going to give away. And also, we kind of have a grand prize, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. Uh, don't forget to check out last week's episode of the podcast, Season 2, Episode 19. It was a great show. We had John Smoltz, which was an honor for me, being a big Braves fan, to have him on the show. We also had Tom Verducci from SI, SI.com, and Chris Ballard from SI, who has one of our book club books of the month that we'll tell you more about during that. Um, also, don't forget about our Football Nation podcast. Last week, we had uh, Chris Burke from SI.com, and this week, we have Aaron Nagler from Bleacher Report and also uh, Cheesehead TV. Uh, Before we can get to our interviews today, though, we have to start this show with three things. Let's play a game, all right? Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't, because the games were played at really strange hours in the United States here. Uh, but Russia dominated the World Hockey Championships, which were held in Finland and Sweden. They were the co-hosts. Russia went 10-0 and 0 in the tournament, and their goal differential was a plus 30. Wow. Uh, they won the championship game over Cinderella Story Slovakia, 6-2. Uh, to two. Evgeny Melkin was the MVP of the tournament. He led the whole thing with 20 points, had two different hat-tricks, including a hat-trick in the semifinals. Did Ovechkin play at all at the end? Ovechkin did play. play. Salmon played. They were really stacked. If you're wondering about the United States, they got upset by Cinderella Slovakia in the quarterfinals. They almost lost to like Kazakhstan, though, too, didn't they? They did. It seemed like they played up and down to their competition. They beat, right, beat right. Canada, you know, they beat some of the hockey powers, and then they struggled with Norway, struggled with uh, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan uh, Borat's country. That's right. And uh, the Canada suffered the same fate, lost in the quarterfinals. So don't have to worry about that. It's always <laughs> would have been nice to be able to kind of brag a little bit, but. Um, the uh, bronze medal was won by the Czech Republic. So the former Czechoslovakia won the uh, silver and bronze medal. Uh, but I guess the main thing here is that Russia has kind of established themselves now as the favorite for the 2014 Olympics, sure. which they'll be hosting. Uh, Russia hockey looking very, very dominant again, kind of like they were in the uh, – Red Army era, and also don't forget the two first draft the two picks. first picks in this year's draft are slated to be Russian, so they keep on coming. Absolutely. Um, in horse racing news, what is it? Equestrian news. Uh, I'll have another wins the Preakness and awesome race. Did you see it? I did not, but I heard he won it a lot, like he won the race before that, right of, down uh, into the last two furlongs, and he caught him in the last step this time. And look, I'm not too into horse racing, but. Even a novice can watch uh, the Kentucky Derby in this race and kind of be like, "Wow, that was really done well by the jockey." Like they, yep. they ran the race they wanted to and won. So, 
Yeah, it's a big enough event that I figured we had to bring it up. I'm not the biggest horse racing guy. I'm not convinced the horses care about whether or not you know, they win or I don't lose. think anyone really is a big horse racing guy anymore. I mean, 100 years ago, I was talking about this at a wedding the other day. 100 years ago, the three biggest sports in America were boxing, horse, horse racing, racing, and baseball. Yeah. Obviously, that's changed quite a bit. And I think that's why Commissioner Goodell does a lot of the things he does to not take for granted the fact that right. the NFL is on top now. Because you only have to look back. 100 years in American history to see two examples of sports that were on top and aren't anymore. But we're going to have Tim Layden on at some point before they run the Triple Crown or right after. He is the guy who does the sports, the horse racing uh, work at SI. He's going to join us at some point next week, week after, or if we have to do it after the race, we will. But we will get him on. Here's the thing. Nobody's a huge horse racing fan, but when you get to Belmont, the last race of the Triple Crown, it's exciting because sure. it's hasn't uh, you have a chance in, uh, to see something that hasn't happened since 1978. 78, yep. So that's our lifetimes. It hasn't yeah, happened. Absolutely. And uh, I'll have another is a cool horse. He's, he's an underdog. He comes back. And the horse that he has caught in the last it's two the races. Same horse. Is, and he's sitting out Belmont. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's not going to run it. Usually it works the other way around, doesn't it? Where they it does, and there is the going Preakness? to be a horse that set out the Preakness in the Belmont that may even be favored over I'll Have Another. That's typically why you don't see the Triple Crown winner. And you, we, I don't know it's how a many... long race. The last one's a mile and a half, and yeah, it's we... the only mile and a half oval track in the country for horses. Oh, okay. So. Live and learn. Yep. <laughs> All right, my second thing. Uh, the Orlando Magic uh, yesterday fired their head coach, Stan Van Gundy, and had a mutual parting ways with their general manager. Uh, the CEO, Alex Martins, said in a statement, It's time for new leadership and new voices. The disappointment of getting eliminated in the first round of the playoffs these past two seasons played a par- primary role in our decision as we feel our momentum towards winning a championship has paused. Uh, time out, Alex. <laughs> Uh, the reason you fired Stan Van Gundy is because Dwight Howard wanted you to. Right. And Dwight Howard has a contract that's going to be expiring soon, and you desperately want to keep him, so you're trying to appease him. Don't forget, though, that the Cavaliers tried this, and LeBron left anyway. He sure did. So I've heard a lot. I, I'm not an expert on this, but I've been watching some people who are talk about it. Stan Van Gundy's a great coach, and there's some great coaches out there, but maybe none as good as Stan. So if you're going to make a a play like this where you're trying to appease a star, and it's obvious to everyone that they are trying to appease their star, who, by the way, wasn't available to them in the first round of the playoffs. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the expectations were going into the playoffs without Dwight Howard. If they were high, they shouldn't have been. But uh, this is a a really dangerous move that can backfire on an organization and set them back quite a bit when you do this for a star. So let's keep an eye on it. What happens with the Orlando Magic, who kicked poor Stan Van Gundy out the door yesterday? He's an entertaining guy, too. And Otis Smith is their general manager, who was uh, kicked to the curb as well. Wow. Cleaning house. Um, in what kind of could have been news, Kerry Wood retires, uh, leaving behind, I just heard, a 14-year career, which makes me feel old. But... Uh, Career plagued by injuries. He had Tommy John surgery at one point. Uh, comes off, has a nice final moment where he comes in, faces one batter, strikes him out in three pitches, and then walks off uh, to his son. So 
kind of a cool moment, um, a career that I'm sure he'll he'll have regrets about. I mean, you can't help injuries, but really a real talented guy. This is his rookie season, right? His rookie year was yeah. a 20 strikeout game. You know, I remember that game. It was against the Houston Astros. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, watching it with my cousin, who was a, actually a, pit- a pitching prospect at the time. And you could argue that that was one of the greatest games ever thrown by a pitcher. He did let up one hit, so it wasn't a perfect, perfect game. game or no hit, right? But uh, he did have the 20 strikeouts, and, I mean, he looked absolutely dominant. And like you said, it, I think Cubs fans will always wonder what could have been if he didn't have the injuries he did. In 2005, him and Mark Pryor almost led the Cubs to the uh, World Series. And everyone always thinks of Game 5 and Bartman. And, yeah. Or ga- uh, Game 6, excuse me. Bartman and the uh, the fly ball that he kind of uh, interfered with Moises, Moises Alou. Alou yeah. But if you remember Game 7, Kerry Wood hit a home run, a three-run home run, to make that game 6-3 to three Cubs in Game 7. And they couldn't hold that lead. And that's probably a game that Kerry Wood looks back on and absolutely kills himself about. But, yeah, like you said, Don, uh, I think when he walked off the mound the day he struck out 20 people, Cubs fans were <laughs> probably pretty pumped. saying that we have the next Nolan Ryan here. Right. And it just didn't quite make it to that. As a consolation prize, he got to go to a uh, karaoke bar and watch Eddie Vedder and Chris Chelios sing karaoke. I'd at, take it. Uh, yeah, at a party or whatever for Carrie afterwards. So a, a nice career, a lot of what-ifs, but uh, congratulations, I guess, Carrie Wood, on a 14-year career. All right, another star Major League Baseball player, this is my third thing, It was Roger Clemens, who right now is standing uh, trial um, in Washington. And Brian McNamee, his former trainer, whose name has been in the news, has been on the stands. Uh, the last couple days here, and he finally got a chance to name names in front of the jury, and oh boy, it is quite a list. <laughs> uh, he told told jurors he gave HGH to other players, three of them, Don. Andy Pettit, Chuck Knobloch, who couldn't throw the ball from second base to first without <laughs> injuring somebody's <laughs> wife in the stands, and Mike Stanton. Uh, the government's case needed a boost as it hit the home stretch Monday in the sixth week of the pre-jury trial that will determine whether Clemens lied to Congress in 2008 when he denied using performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, McNamee was Clemens' former strength coach. Uh, He's the one who says that he supplied uh, Clemens with HGH. And like I said, he had a chance to name names. Does anyone believe Clemens at this point? No, I don't think anyone believes Clemens, but you know what? I think everyone agrees that this is ridiculous, and, and it's a waste of time at this point. Right. I mean, what I are, mean, you, what, what are they going to do? Government. I mean, what are you going to really get Clemens on here? I mean, what? Pur- I mean, he perjured himself, right? That was He lied in court, but doesn't, right. ev- doesn't everybody lie in court that yeah. gets found guilty of something? I mean, I, I don't know. Baseball has a problem. They know they have a problem. I don't know what the, the government thinks they're going to do by beating up on ex-players. If you want to read more about this case, uh, there's an AP story floating around out there that SI is running right now. McNamee tells jurors he gave other players HGH. And that's basically the the story. I guess uh, McNamee is having health problems that caused him to take frequent breaks during his testimony, which made him come across as a sympathy figure in the final notice Final moments of what was 26 hours on the stand. Wow. Uh, 
a small three days of brutal cross-examination, I guess. So this trial is just going on and on. The story's going okay. on and on. Roger Clemens has been retired for how long? How much money have we spent, taxpayers' dollars, to put Roger Clemens on what I'm sure is going to be house arrest for a month or something? Yeah, who knows? It's, it's a waste of time. Frustrating. In other uh, baseball and, I guess, sports news, the sports record was set for the largest dollar amount ever spent on a piece of sports memorabilia, that being Babe Ruth's jersey, apparently. <laughs> uh, Leland's.com submitted the winning bid for the jersey, which had been displayed for years at the Babe Ruth Birthplace Museum in Baltimore. Uh you mentioned to me that before I came in here, you were listening to Francesa, Mike Francesa. Yeah, ask about. Yeah, I got, here's what happened. So yesterday, Francesa gets a call. There's he's taking calls, you know, kind of open phone lines. The guy says to him, "Hey, did you see that Babe Ruth's jersey won for four million bucks?" Francesa kind of goes on a rant about how he hates sports memorabilia, but how he did see this, and um, he, he started to go on, kind of curiously wondering. What the authentication process was. So How do they know it says? He had his producers call the auction house and get the president of the auction house on the phone with them. Francesca kind of says, I want to know one question. How did you go about authenticating this jersey? Now, Francesca was citing a case where Billy Crystal had bought a glove, a Mickey Mantle baseball glove that was supposed to be made uh, from 1961. They did some tests on it after he bought it, and they found that the material wasn't produced in 1961. So Ooh. it was a fraud. Right. So I guess that was on Francis's mind. He didn't get anywhere with the guy from the auction house who ended up hanging up on him because he wouldn't answer the question. And Francesca kept, I guess, Grown. re-asking it. Yeah, yeah. So eventually Francesca got on the phone with the authenticator who has a business in Milwaukee and I heard the interview, and I know it is on the Yes Network's uh, on demand. On whatever. demand, you, right. can, you can see it. But uh, I'll tell you what: this is what I took from it. I would not spend four million dollars based on this guy's recommendation. Right. I wonder what this is. SCP Auctions. That's the auction house based out of California. Uh, they say the jerseys from around 1920. And what if that happens? What what happens if it is turn out to be false? Is it buyer beware? Type I think thing? so. I mean, I think you're buying it based on the authentication. And you know, there's a 40 year period where this jersey's basically not accounted for. Really, it, it was uh, one thing that gave it some legitimacy is that it came from the Babe Ruth Museum in Baltimore. Right, right. But there was 40 years where it wasn't in that museum. And it wasn't 1920. Like I don't think it was in the possession of the Babe Ruth Estate and Museum until the 1960s. Sometime. I guess if you buy it and it went for four million four hundred fifteen thousand six hundred fifty-eight dollars, I guess if you buy this jersey, you either hope a that it is the real thing, or b if it's a fake. As long as nobody finds out, I still have this jersey that's worth well. Interestingly, there was a statement from the people who bought it that they're planning on selling it to one of their private buyers so they bought it in this auction with the hopes to sell it to a private buyer he just wants to be and they probably or? want what's his name francesa to shut the fuck up yeah you know what i mean like this this people who bought this are four millions like all right francesa enough with the investigative reporting why don't you wait until after we resell this to our uh, private buyer <laughs> Yeah, the, this broke the record, surprisingly not by too much. There was a $4.338 million uh, 
auction of James Naismith's Founding Rules of Basketball. Right, and that's something that's a lot easier to authenticate because you can authenticate signatures. Right, it's a it's a book of rules, you can age books, and I mean, but the, the jersey, it's like the the evidence. He's like, well, I looked at pictures, and then. I uh, there was only a certain number of years that it could have been worn, and it had Ruth's name in it, and he didn't have many <laughs> jerseys. And I mean, there was no forensic study done, right? You know, uh, checking the fibers to see if they match in terms of. I mean, Francesa had this guy walk around in circles. He did his best. He was answering the questions. It wasn't like the first guy who didn't want any part of it. You know, I used to be into memorabilia, but and I guess I still kind of am, but more for the. Memorabilia. I don't expect to like right. Uh, the memorabilia that I'm into is the one that I want for my personal collection. Right. Like for example, you bought me a, a really nice uh, Oklahoma Sooners mini helmet signed by Adrian Peterson. Right. I I display that proudly. I'm glad I have it because I love Adrian Peterson in Oklahoma. But I I don't ever want to sell it because I I have no idea if it would even be worth anything. It, but right. that doesn't matter to me because that's not why I have it. Right. And and this stuff goes up and down because. Really, it's only worth what you can get someone to pay for it. So when the economy's down and people don't have money for things like sports memorabilia, the business takes a hit. You know, when the economy's up, people have extra money. They're spending things like this. Prices go up. Yeah, I like the idea of memorabilia as a money-making thing. When I was a lot more, when I was a lot younger and more naive about, I just thought I was going to buy a pack of cards someday and become rich. Right, and, because uh, we heard all these stories about our parents who are like, "Oh, we shouldn't have put those cards in the spokes." Right, but little—I mean, everyone little did collects we know, things now. Yeah, that there was a billion cards being produced, and you know, if you have a Pete Rose autograph, I hope you don't think it's worth anything because the guy signs autographs four <laughs> days a week in Vegas. Right, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, good luck to the owner of the Babe Ruth jersey. Hopefully, it's real and uh, you're happy with your purchase. All right, that's going to do it for three things today. Uh, like I said, we're going to have Kenny Albert on in a second. We're going to come back, update the book club. We're going to ask with a T on after that. Uh, then we're going to kind of announce and give parameters to a contest that we're going to run in the next couple of weeks that are going to go along in conjunction with our uh, special book club show. We're also going to announce today the book club book of the year. And we'll have an interview with Jeff Benedict and close things out with pick four. So let's take a break and come back with uh, Kenny Albert. Uh, our first guest today is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of New York University. He has called hockey games for the Baltimore Skipjacks, Washington Capitals, the NHL on ESPN2, NHL Radio, NHL on Fox, the New York Rangers, and the last three Olympics. This spring, he has called NHL playoff games for the NBC Sports Network and New York Rangers Radio. Since 1994, he has called NFL games for Fox, and since 2007, he has worked on the network's second broadcast team with Daryl Johnson and Tony Saragusa. Since his last appearance on the podcast, he has done play-by-play for the longest game in this year's NHL playoffs. For the third time, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the awesome Kenny Albert. How are you doing today, Kenny? Very good, Stephen. How are you? Very good. Uh, Really been enjoying the spring, the playoffs. Been enjoying catching you on some some Rangers uh, broadcasts. What I really, or some Versus broadcasts, or NBC Sports Network, excuse me. But what I really enjoyed... I had to tell you this was I absolutely loved your call of the Brad Richards goal with 6.6 seconds to go. I uh, found it on YouTube and, and thought it was great. 
Where does that rank among kind of exciting hockey moments? At, well, it's certainly career? up there, and you're referring to Game 5 of the Washington series. Right. Brad Richards tied the game with 7.6 seconds remaining, and then Mark Stahl won the game in overtime, giving the Rangers a 3-2 lead in that series. And, um, you know, there have certainly been a lot of memorable moments during this playoff run, the Marion Gabbert goal in triple overtime you mentioned earlier, and hopefully we have some more. You know, it's... Uh, a 2-2 series now with the Rangers and Devils. I just got back from Ranger practice at Madison Square Garden, and uh, they're looking forward, putting last night's loss behind them. And uh, They seem loose at practice today. They had a good practice, and uh, John Tortorella uh, was great in his press conference after the practice. So uh, they're looking ahead, and like I said, hopefully we have a lot more memorable moments during these 2012 playoffs. I don't know if you thought of this, but let's go back to that that game five real fast because I, I want to make a comparison here that maybe you thought of, maybe you didn't. But when the Sabres won the President's Trophy in the second round of the playoffs, they played the Rangers. And game five was a home game for the Sabres. The series was tied 2-2. Two to two. The Rangers were winning by one goal very, very late in the game. And Chris Drury scored a goal with 7.7 uh, seconds to go to tie that game. And then the Sabres won on a power play goal in overtime of Maximum Finneganov. And I couldn't help but think of that game when the night of Game 5 of this Rangers series. It seems so similar to me. The road team was clinging to a one-goal lead, looking to go up 3-2, to two, take control of the series. And then the, the clutch player on the team scores the goal in the, in the late seconds. They win in a, in a power play in overtime, and then away they go. They end up winning in seven. The Sabres won in six. The only difference there, but it just was so incredibly similar to me. I don't know if you thought of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought of that pretty quickly after the goal was scored by Richards, and uh, Dave Maloney and I talked about it on the air, um, and we were there you know, doing the game when, when Chris Drury scored with 7.7. The other one is the Valerie Zelopukin goal in Game 7 of the 94 Conference Final when he tied the game at right. MSG with 7.7 on the clock, and then Stefan Matteau scored in a double overtime. So, uh, like you said, the major difference was that the Sabres would win the series in six. They won the next game at MSG, uh, while the Rangers, of course, would lose game six in Washington and then come home and win game seven, two to one. Why do you think the Rangers have struggled so much to string wins together? It seems like they take one step forward and one step back in these series so far. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, they're 10 and 8 in the playoffs now, and um, they went. You know, win-loss, 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 win in the Washington series, and now they've gone win-loss, win-loss against New Jersey. And You know, it's funny, you can look at it two ways. They've struggled to uh, string wins together, you know, in this series and in the last series as well. Uh, but on the other hand, they've also bounced back from losses. You know, they won every game after a loss in the Washington series, and they won game three after a loss in this series. So momentum has not been a factor at all. You know, both teams have uh, been able to put the previous game behind them. Uh, the Devils have d done the same thing twice. They've been shut out twice and came back to win the next game both times. So it's it's uh, it's been pretty incredible to watch. The Rangers have played so much of this playoffs with five defense, and Piccolo has played very little. And even beyond that, the top two, McDonough and Girardi, they seem to play a lot of ice time. Do you worry about that catching up with them at all as they drag, you know, these series have been long. This has been a grind. They're not the San Antonio Spurs, the Los Angeles Kings here so far. You worry about that at all? Maybe that those guys in the back end wear out a little bit? De definitely a little bit, but, 
you know, and it's remarkable that neither of them has missed a game this year. The Rangers have played 100 games, regular season plus playoffs, and Girardi and McDonough have played all 100. Um, and you're right, Bickle hasn't played a lot. Delzato, Stahl, see a lot of minutes. Strawman, you know, fifth on that list. But, uh, you know, a couple of things. I think when you look at all successful teams come playoff time, that sixth defenseman doesn't usually see as much ice time as the others. So, you know, whether it was a Niedermeyer or, a, you know, Scott Stevens with the Devils back in the day or a Chris Pronger with Anaheim, you know, I think those those top defensemen are going to see a lot of minutes, and it's not really different with McDonough and Girardi. I think a couple of things in their favor is the Rangers' travel has been so easy in the playoffs. They've, they've been on a plane four times, to and from Ottawa twice. They took a train to Washington, and they've bust across to New Jersey. So you don't have the fatigue factor, you know, getting in late after flights. And the other thing is John has really managed the days off well throughout the entire regular season. This team has gotten a lot of time off, um, including, you know, some days during the playoffs. So uh, I think those all add in, you know, on the positive side as far as the potential fatigue to Girardi and McDonough. You know, I wonder what the challenge is like for you to go, while you're calling these games for the NBC Sports Network, it's a national broadcast, it's television, uh, obviously a big difference there. Then you transition to the radio to the radio and the Rangers, and it's it's a home broadcast. How how is that challenging for you to go from one to the other the way you have this spring pretty seamless seamlessly? It's a little bit of a challenge, but you know I'm involved on the national side in both football and baseball, so um, I'm used to that. You know, as far as playing it down the middle on the national broadcast and on the Rangers broadcast, you know, while Dave and I are around the team all the time, we travel with the team. Uh, we, we do try to present a fair broadcast. You know, we certainly are, are not homers at all. That's not our philosophy and uh, never would be. But, uh, you know, you try to present a fair broadcast. And, yeah, it's great when the Rangers win, and, and the more games they win, the more we get to work. So it's probably not as, as challenging as you would think, going back and forth between the Ranger radio and the national broadcasts. If the Rangers can pull this off and the Kings can finish off their series, I think a lot of people for a long time have thought, you know, the last few years there's been some some difficult Stanley Cup matchups in terms of selling for television. Last year there was a Canadian market. This year they would get, if if, if it can play out this way, they would get the number one and the number two TV networks. But there's been some disagreement on the blogs and online on what that would mean for the sport. For someone who's covered uh, the sport nationally and locally, what do you think a one versus two market Stanley Cup would mean for the sport? Well, I think it would be terrific. Um, you know, we've seen a kind of a trend here the last four years after the previous four years. You know, beginning in 04, you had Tampa Bay and Calgary in the finals, two small markets, one Canadian market, you know, as far as U.S. television goes. Uh, then you had the lockout. Then in 06, it was Carolina. Carolina in the finals, yep. which is obviously another small market, Carolina against Edmonton, a Canadian market, Anaheim in 07 against Ottawa, uh-huh. same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it took a, a bit of a turn in 08. Uh, and, and, of course, go back to 03 with Anaheim and Jersey, so four in a row, 03, 04, 06, and 07. But since 2008, Pittsburgh and Detroit twice, Philadelphia and Chicago, Boston and Vancouver, even though Vancouver is a Canadian market, uh, you know, they're they're a team that has a lot of history and, a big city in Canada, so I think the TV ratings were pretty good. But if it 
is the Rangers and Kings, and you know we still have a long way to go in this series. You could right. have three more games in the East, and, and the Kings certainly haven't wrapped things up in the West. But if that were the matchup, I think it would be great for television. Uh, the Stanley Cup dates were announced today, uh, the TV networks as well, and five of the potential seven games would be on NBC. Games three and four would be on NBC Sports Network. But uh, I think it would be terrific having the two big markets. Rangers haven't been to the finals since 94, and the Kings haven't been there since 93. The sportscasters are here with Kenny Albert. He's a great friend to the show. You can follow him on Twitter, at Kenny Albert. He's been calling. Been really busy here the last uh, couple of uh, months with the NHL playoffs, calling New York Rangers games, and also calling some games on the NBC Sports Network. I want to ask you a couple more questions about the Rangers. One being, in, in both Game 7s, it seems like the big money Rangers have really stepped up and, and been unbelievable uh, Brad Richards has been good in both. Uh, Lundqvist had a shutout in, in one of them. Uh, how how much does this team really count on their bigger stars uh, to step up and take control? Because they they play a style where they get into these one-goal games, and I think they know that their series might be a little bit longer because sometimes you're going to lose a 2-1 to one and, not, and not win a 2-1. to one. Right, and all their games have been close. They've been low-scoring games. Um, and you're right about the Game 7s. The Stars have stepped up. Um, Brad Richards scored early in Game 7 against Washington, which is a key. The fact that the Rangers took a one nothing lead so early in that game, you know, before two minutes elapsed. And uh, defensemen have come through as well, you know, with the winning goals. Mark Stahl and, and uh, Michael Delzato in, in the two Game 7s. Uh, Dan Girardi has a couple of winners in the playoffs. And Henrik Lundqvist, as you mentioned, gave up just one goal in each of those two games, you know, both 2-1 finals to Ottawa and Washington. So, um, you know, we could see another Game 7 in this round. Who knows? And John Tortorella has spoken all year long about home ice advantage really only meaning anything in a Game 7 of a series, and uh, we've seen that both times so far with the Rangers. Have you ever seen a team block shots as well as this Rangers team does? Well, they're among the best, and, you know, I know – I wasn't at a lot of the games, so I don't have the personal, you know, remembrance of it. But John Tortorella's Tampa Bay team in 2004 was a big shot-blocking team as well. And, uh, you know, Tortorella always says, if you don't block shots on my team, you're not going to play. And we've seen everybody do it, from Gabrick to Strawman, you know, guys who never really blocked a lot of shots early in their careers. So uh, it was a key storyline early in this series after game one when the Rangers blocked 26 shots. And, you know, now the Devils, on the other hand, uh, trying to get traffic in front of Lundqvist and uh, getting deflections. And, and, you know, that's been a key as well. They scored two goals on deflections in game two, and they've had some other great chances off deflections. So I think that's one way that they've kept the puck away from the shot blockers, try to shoot around the guys and then go for the deflection in front. What has been your take on the press conferences? He's been great the last couple of days. I mean, today was one of the best ever as far as Tortorella. You know, I know early in the series, you know, some folks complained about how short the answers were, but, you know, if you listen to last night's press conference and today's, um, you know, really spoke eloquently and, uh, you know, explained a lot of what went on, and I think he was, uh, like I said, tremendous both last night after the game and, and today at the Garden. Do you think that uh, something was, was said to him? Like, why do you think it just changed all of a sudden? Because I, when we were watching the end of the game last night, I said to my brother, over under 25 words in the press conference tonight, he said over, and then, like you said, it was great. It was like a completely different guy. I wanted to check the score again to see if the Rangers had had won three to nothing. 
you know, he's a very smart guy and, and very calculated. And, you know, a lot of what we've seen as far as the press conferences and the playoffs is similar to what we see during the regular season. It's just that more people are paying attention. And I think last night, after the way the team played, I think he wanted to, you know, set the tone as far as looking ahead and, and not reacting to the loss and not, uh, you know, presenting anything in a negative light. And today, the same thing. It was all positive. He felt they had a great practice today, a great team meeting, and I think that helps set the tone moving forward uh, heading into the game tomorrow following the loss in Game 4. Kenny, I know that you're a guy who loves hockey. Um, Hockey's been a part of your life since you were a kid, and I wonder if you were offended at all by the comments that Colin Cowherd made kind of belittling the people that cover hockey, calling them kids, and and almost referring to them as like the D-team on any – uh, media outlets roster. You know, I, I heard, I didn't see the exact comments, but uh, I heard something about them. And, uh, you know, obviously it's 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 a, a pretty silly statement to make, so uh, I don't put any credence into it because I know how hard the, the hockey media has worked, you know, and, and so many guys have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, so I'm not sure uh, why exactly he would have made that comment. All right, so last thing, the Rangers and the Devils, they got themselves into basically a best of three now. Two of the games are going to be played at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Maybe just real quickly, what do you think, if the Rangers win this series, what exactly went right for them? Or if the Devils win this series, what went right for them? Well, I think for the Rangers to win, you know, in particular tomorrow's game and then the series, I think first of all, Henrik Lundqvist has to stand on his head, which we've seen in games one and three. And the Rangers have to score first. Um the last 12 games the Rangers have played against Ottawa, Washington, and New Jersey, the team that has scored first has won the game. So I think scoring first is key. Staying out of the penalty box in game four, the Rangers had to kill off six power plays, and the Devils had to face only one. And now five of those were in the third period, but um, I, I think those are the keys. Staying out of the penalty box, scoring first, and goaltending from Henrik Lundqvist. All right, uh, Kenny Albert, you can find him on Twitter, at Kenny Albert, and you can listen to his call of the game on the New York Rangers Radio Network. Thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Hope to do it again soon. Okay, talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Kenny Albert for being on the show today. Kenny's a really good friend of the podcast Pretty much every time I've asked him, he's he's been willing to come on, and he always comes on after he's called some really cool yeah. games. So it's it's really cool to have uh, a friend like Kenny. All right, book club update. Uh, we've been doing this for the last couple of weeks here in May. It's a big month for books and the book club. We got a bunch of different things uh, that we're we've been reading this month. We're going to go over it uh, today and next week. So two more times, a couple more plugs for the people who have been nice enough to send us these books. All right, the first one uh, was we had the author on last week, Chris Ballard. The book is called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. Uh, the book book is about a baseball team from Illinois, a really small town in Illinois that ends up making a really magical run towards a state championship. Uh, the book came out last week. It's available now wherever books are sold and Don, you know each week we simulcast our podcast on proplayerinsider.com and one of the people who was responsible for for first of all playing in the games that are described in the book and also bringing the story to Chris Ballard 
heard Chris's interview on the podcast last week and commented and uh, gave me an email address and said if we wanted uh, more information about the story of the book, we could do that. And I may take him up on that offer. Nice. Uh, but again, the book is called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach in a Magical Baseball Season. That's by Chris Ballard. Book number two is uh, probably the one that if you read along with us and you like to kind of anticipate the author coming on, the one you should be focus on, focusing on right now. It's called Like Any Normal Day by Mark Cram Jr., uh, Mark's had a long career in journalism. This is his first book, and Mark's going to join us on the show next week to talk about the book. Uh, we kind of got hooked up with Mark and this book through our buddy Alex Belth and the Bronx Banter blog. And if you go to the Bronx Banter blog, you can find a question and answer that Mark Cram did with Alex. Uh, the book, I'm about halfway through it now, which most of the reading I did between last week and this week. And I got to say, it's, it's, it's a tough book. Uh, it's, it's a sports book, but it's not, it's a lot more than that. And I I don't mean it's tough and that there's words I need to look up in the, in the dictionary. I mean, it's tough and that the subject matter is deep. Right. Right. If this book was going to be a movie, it'd be a drama and it'd be a sad one. Yep. Yeah. We compared it to a million dollar baby last week. Right. So that's, uh, Mark Cram Jr.'s book, like any normal day. And Mark will join us on the podcast next week to talk about that. All right. Also on last week's show, a big throw for us was John Smoltz was on the program. Uh, John has his memoir out. The book is called Starting and Closing. He wrote it with Don Yeager. Uh, I thought the Smoltz interview was excellent last week. Got some really great feedback from some of the listeners about it. We appreciate that. And uh, there's not a lot to say other than if you're a fan of the Braves or if you're a fan of 90s baseball, uh, this is definitely a, a book for you. Now, if you're a fan of 70s baseball, I just want to mention as a side note, we got a book in the mail today called Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funny Ride Through Baseball and America in the Swinging 70s. That's by Dan Epstein. I'll let you know in the future if we're going to make this a book club book of the month or if Dan's going to be on with us. But they sent it to us, so I, I thought I'd mention it. And the book does have a website, which is just www.bighairandplasticgrass.com. Yep. So if you're interested in that, you can go there. Uh, the last kind of official book club book of the month this month, and I know we had a lot of them this month, but you know sometimes a lot of books come up, and we would never pass up on the opportunity to have Frank DeFord on the podcast. And Frank joined us to talk about his memoir, simply called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. And Frank was on two shows ago. And if you want to hear Frank talk about Overtime or John talk about uh, starting and closing, you can do that by going to our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find the podcast on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. So if you want to read any of these or hear any of the interviews that we did with the authors of these books, uh, like I said, our website's probably our, your best bet, www.sports-casters.com. Now, before we move on, uh, I want to one more time, maybe two more times, we'll see. <laughs> I want to mention an unbelievable unbelievably striking coffee table yeah, book the coolest looking book we've had called behind the moves nhl general managers tell how winners are built it's coffee table sized it's individually numbered and autographed by neil smith the general manager of the new york rangers 1994 stanley cup team uh we have number 17 of 150 you can only get this book on the internet and the website to get it is www.nhlgms.com gms uh, look at if you're into 
uh, kind of how teams are built and how trades get done. And you like uh, kind of oversized coffee table books and you think that this would make a nice conversation piece in your living room. We highly recommend it. It's very beautifully done. Like Don says, it, it looks cooler than probably any book we've ever gotten before it. Right. Um, and there's a ton of information in it. It's not a standard coffee table book in the sense that there's not just a bunch of different pictures with captions. There's tons of information. It's loaded with information on all of the general managers who have ever been general managers in the National Hockey League. There's stats and there's charts and there is pictures. So we highly recommend the book. Again, it's called Behind the Moves, NHL General Managers, How Tell How Winners Are Built. You can find that at www.nhlgms.com. All right, we are going to take a break, and we are going to come back with Tass Mellis from the Basketball Jones podcast. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of Ryerson University. In the past, he has worked as an editor at Yard Barker and a story editor at TSN, and has served as an on-air personality for Raptors TV. Today, he is the co-founder and co-host of the Basketball Jones podcast blog and TV show at the Score Television Network. The podcast is simulcast each Friday on the Grantland Podcast Network. He's making his second appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Tass Mellis. How are you doing today, Tass? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for the uh, the wonderful introduction song there. Yeah, happy May 2-4, man. Thank you very much. It was, uh, it was a wonderful one here in Canada. Still recovering. Did you go to the cottage? Uh, that's exactly. We go up to the cottage, have a few pops at the cottage. That's exactly what we do here. I love it. You know... Uh, I have Sabres season tickets, and the guy who sits behind me uh, is a, a good friend and a Canadian. And he, this uh, winter, bought a cottage um, in Perry Sound, Ontario. And uh, I've never seen a happier man in my life than uh, when he was telling me about this cottage. So <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's, that's very funny because the cottage that I attended actually was just by Perry Sound. Uh, I'm sure we ran into him. Is his name Gary or Bob? One of the two. Yeah, his name's Bob. Rob, Bob. That's it. Yeah, Bob, Bob. That's him. Yeah, Tom. Unbelievable. (laughs) 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 All right. So we took you up on an offer that you made the last time you were on, which I'm sure right now you're like, I should have never made that offer uh, to come back on during the NBA playoffs. And I got to tell you that my take on the playoffs so far has been this. And I, I, I can't help but compare the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs because they're so similar, you know, the way they run kind of side by side. thought the NHL playoffs started incredible and the NBA playoffs was a bore. And then it seems like the NHL playoffs has turned into a bore and the NBA playoffs has really picked up. seems like the second round was a lot better than the first round. And I guess my question for you is, do you think the NBA made a mistake when they switched the first round from a best of five to a best of seven? That's a great question. Uh, I, I'm kind of kind of on the fence of that one because I would say about half the series tend to be good, especially in the Western Conference. 
um, where it's pretty evenly balanced from one through eight. So even in the first round, you can go seven. Um, and even last year in the East, it ended up being okay. But, I mean, we got screwed this year with Eric Rose being injured. Yep. Um, I mean, the Knicks, you know, not really performing as the seven seed there. So, you know, for if we could do it for one conference and not for the other, I think that would work out. Um, but, you know, at the same time, should we just change it to uh, – you know, top 16 teams make it because a couple more teams in the West would have given uh, a you know, better run to the top seeds than the ones that ended up getting from the East. Actually, you know, saying that, the Sixers are doing doing okay, but as an eight seed in the East. But at the same time, I don't know, we're just lacking a little bit in the Eastern Conference. You know, I wouldn't be upset if they went back to five. Um, but, you know, as a college ball fan, uh, college sports fan yourself, you realize, like, the one and dones are a little bit much, and and I think yeah. the three and five is a little bit of that same variety. It's not quite the you know the one and done where anybody can win, but it, it's closer to that than obviously the four of seven is. So uh, I don't I don't really mind it. Um, you know, generally the teams finish it off quick enough, anyways. But the injuries have kind of put a little bit of a, a damper on the first round, and then the Eastern Conference teams didn't really produce. So I hear what you're saying. Can you remember anything similar to what happened to the Bulls this spring? I mean. I just I can't believe I, I you know the, I feel so bad for them and, and the city and the fans where you have a team that plays at the level that they played all season and the first game it's just all taken away from them basically. Yeah, I can't remember anything of the sort. I mean, it, it's had to have been a long time, and uh, you know, it, it seemed like the the fans weren't that surprised because of the way their season has gone as well. I mean, Derrick Rose is you know just there for, you know, a little over half the games of the season. So uh, in a weird way, you know, I think they kind of felt doomed for a long time, even though their team really executed really well without Derek Rose. Uh, it, it, it was a, it just put such a damper on the, the Eastern Conference playoff picture, and especially for a guy like that. I mean, uh, you know, having met him a few times, the guy lives for ball. And, um, you know, even seeing him at the All-Star Weekend back in February when he was going through injuries, uh, and he, you know, was kind of down in the dumps about it. He just said, like, you know, I get a, an ankle injury, and all of a sudden I look up and I miss six games because of the shortened season. And he just, he was always pushing himself to get back into the lineup. And there's talks about, you know, maybe the Bulls got him back into the lineup too soon a few times. And ACL can blow any time. Um, but at the same time, I felt like he, a lot of injuries kind of just snowballed on him this season and if it was a longer year you know if it was a regular 82 game schedule maybe they sit him out a little more because they don't have to fight for positioning um but again they go and get the number one seed anyways and it all just comes down you know all for naught really you know the eastern conference playoffs they seem to have just been almost decimated by injuries i mean uh the celtics are, are banged up but they're they're kind of uh chugging along here uh the Sixers you could argue maybe would have you know probably would have never won that series against a full strength Bulls team uh the Magic obviously had to play their series without Dwight Howard now the Heat are playing without uh Chris Bosh um when you look at what's left of the teams that are alive in the Eastern Conference playoffs how do you kind of handicap it who do you think the favorite is to come out of the East as we talk right now uh, knowing what we know right now, and maybe not having one piece of information we like, and that is the status of Chris Bosh going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest thing. But at the same time, 
watching those Miami Heat in Game Four where they tied up the Pacers. Now we're we're looking at Game Five tonight, Tuesday night. Uh, that team is uh, they got some production out of their bigs, which was great. Uh, I'm a big Udonis Haslam fan. Uh, to see him play that many minutes and go five of six um, was was phenomenal. And to see LeBron James and Dwayne Wade playing off each other that was basketball. They've been doing a lot of hey. Uh, you know, especially since Chris Bosh's injury, um, the, the two games they did a lot of, hey, you go do your thing for a quarter, I'll do my thing for a quarter. Um, but then they played, started playing off each other a little bit more, a lot more cutting along the baseline, a lot of just making sure the other one was involved. And I'm sure they were gassed by the end of it because they carry the team so much without Chris Bosh. But uh, they're pretty unstoppable. Uh, and and defensively, it's a bit of a worry without, uh, I know Chris Bosh isn't you know, the, the biggest factor defensively, but he's an extra capable body. And that's how sparse they are in the front court. You know, Roni Turiaf, Joel Anthony, John Sazen are having to play a lot of minutes. Those are the only three guys who are really capable of playing minutes. John Howard should not be playing whatsoever. Um, so... The lack of depth there is a problem, but uh, just watching those two guys, uh, it was gorgeous stuff. I mean, that's how they have to play to win, and maybe this is a bit of a blessing in disguise because, you know, if they go into the NBA Finals against, you know, the Spurs slash Thunder, um, having not had to, you know, maybe struggle without their star and Chris Bosh, maybe they would be still playing that sort of, oh, we'll get by here with, you know, LeBron playing for a quarter and Wade playing for a quarter. So this is probably good preparation for them because I think handicapping it, getting back to your question there, I miss the Heat. Um, you know, they, they did need that downfall of the game there with Spolster and Wade going at it and a couple games without Chris Bosch. But, you know, going back deuces to, um, to Miami where they're going to win two out of three, no doubt in my mind. I think they're going to beat Boston. And, you know, everybody's claiming that the Western Conference final will be the final because of the, you know, the quality of the Thunder and Spurs to start this weekend. And it's kind of hard to argue that, but it was really great to see Brown and Wade do it uh, in a game four together, the two of them. And then, you know, you got Chris Bosch next series, hopefully in the conference final. Um, you know, hopefully he can take his time at least a little bit, uh, you know, by the end of you know, this week or early next week, uh, depending on when he comes back. And, you know, maybe they've got the team in the East uh, that can handle a little bit of the, the Spurs and Thunder because right now those two teams look, it does look like it's the, uh, the NBA final and the Western Conference final there. Right, and we'll get to that in a second. You know, uh, I remember a game against the Pistons when LeBron was still with the uh, Cavaliers where it was maybe his best game ever, but this game the other day couldn't be any worse than his second-best game in his career, right? Yeah, it was uh, It was something. It was. Uh, he has those games in him, though, and, that, and that's the thing. And there was something wrong in the NBA Finals last year against the Maps. I mean, we all kill him that he had one championship and that, yeah, that he got up and and sat there with Dwayne Wade and said, we're not here for five, we're here for six or right. seven championships. And yeah, I mean, it was stupid of him to do that, and I know he knows that. Um, but those games are just, you just can ring those off at any time. And that's the, that's the problem, though, without Chris Bosh in there, is that he has to carry so much. Uh, and Wade realized that. It was nice to see Wade step up. Um, but it, it's incredible. I mean, we'll... We're not really appreciating him, I don't think, as a, the general public, the general fan base, even the media, as to what this guy can do. I suppose because he's not a winner yet, because you know we haven't put him up on that pedestal like we do NBA champions, and plus you know all the things that kind of killed his credibility by opening his mouth, uh, you know, in 2010 when he signed with the Miami Heat. So 
uh, at the same time, it's just it's it's spectacular to watch, and and uh, I hope he does for that fact. I hope he does get to the finals and at least puts on another performance. Um, you know, like like you sort of mentioned that Pistons won in 07 there, where he, I think he scored 27 of his team's last 28 points right. there to go in overtime in the conference final that sent them to the the NBA final when they got swept. Um, but yeah, I hope I see. You know, it should be great to see the you know, best players on the biggest stage. So. I'm not really excited to see uh, a Pacers team as much as I've been banging their drum this this whole season. I do like them, but I don't see them performing at all against OKC or San Antonio and the Celtics. They're going to be outmatched as well. So if they do make it past the Sixers, I should say that because I definitely don't think the Sixers are going to get there. But I'm looking forward to Miami on the biggest stage. You know, uh, let's switch to the Western Conference here. And um, the San Antonio Spurs are putting on a clinic in the playoffs so far. I don't know if you've heard this stat yet, but when they start the Western Conference Finals, I believe on Sunday, it's going to be thirty the 30th day of the playoffs, and they're going to have 22 days of those 30 off. They've played eight, eight games in eight days and 22 days off in the playoffs. It's unbelievable what they're doing. It's almost the exact opposite of what the New York Rangers are doing in the NHL. Rangers seem to want to play every team seven games. The Spurs have just demolished their competition. Let me ask you a question about that. You know better than me. Has it been bad competition, or has it been the Spurs just being this great, or is it a combination of both? Uh, I'd say a little column A and a little column B, but more more so that they're just they're just playing phenomenal. I, I think the uh, the fact that. Both these teams don't. Both teams that they beat didn't really match up that well. Um, there just there just weren't enough scores on both those teams. Uh, both a lot of, a lot of natural scores on um, the Utah Jazz. You know they had a couple bigs that could score, but they had nobody on the perimeter. They shot terribly from the perimeter. So uh, you know the, the Spurs matched up well with the Tim Duncan and Boris Diaw. Boris Diaw played some phenomenal defense and, on Paul Millsap in that series, and, and and Al Jefferson was just taken away by those two guys. So. Um, that matchup was really bad, but at the same time, the Spurs didn't just beat them by two or three points. I forget what the margin of victory was in that series, but over those four games, I mean, they, they destroyed them. I, I think they're all double-digit wins, um, so they're just they're playing at an optimal level right now. Even though the matchups weren't great for the Utah Jazz, same kind of same kind of thing for the Clippers. But the Clippers obviously have Chris Paul. Uh, the Clippers were playing solid. There were there were close games in that series, so. I think the Spurs were, you know, that the margin of victory even in that series was true to form and true to how the Spurs are playing. So uh, I'm okay with, you know, with the the quality of the opponents there and what they've shown because they're just playing far and away better basketball uh, than those two teams that they played. OKC is obviously a different scenario with the talent of the wings um, because they just haven't seen this. They haven't seen uh, a James... Harden slash Russell Westbrook slash Kevin Durant trio. They haven't seen that. It's going to be a fun matchup to match up with Tony Parker at the point guard spot. And then the two guys that are going to be so key, this is when they're going to prove their worth, Kawhi Leonard and uh, Danny Green on the outside. The perimeter guys are going to do a number. They did, they did a number on Chris Paul, sort of the, the trio of them along with their bigs. They just kind of crowded Chris Paul. Uh, and Blake Griffin had nothing going for him in that series. Just because Borstia was a very solid defender, uh, they played him very well. So the way they crowded and trapped Chris Paul and just let him kind of come into the free throw line area and then throw a lot of hands at him, or what Westbrook Westbrook is going to see, he hasn't seen this yet. James Harden is going to see, he hasn't seen this yet. But the Spurs also haven't seen that many talented 
perimeter players on the court at the same time. You know, you mentioned the Thunder, and they're not far behind the Spurs in terms of uh, efficiency in the playoffs. They've only had one loss. They're 8-1 in the playoffs so far. Uh, the, the Lakers series felt a little bit closer than it was, to me anyway. I, I got to watch most of those games, and it, it seemed like the Lakers were, were letting it slip away in the fourth quarter. I seen a lot of tweets last night that said things like, you know, it's the end of an era in L.A., things like that. Do, are, you, are you on that page? Do you think that uh, the Lakers are going to have to rebuild their team if they're going to win a, a championship anytime in the future? Uh, yeah, they're going to have to rebuild. I mean, it's not going to come internally, I'd say. And and there's such a quick organization to act if something isn't working. I mean, we saw, we saw you know, the, the three-headed monster of Pau Gasol, Andrew Bynum, and Kobe Bryant fail last year when they got swept by the Mavs. They tried to upgrade a little bit at the point guard position by getting Ramon Sessions this year. And Sessions is, is a decent point guard, but he's got to learn how to be a better point guard. And is it going to happen internally? I think that's the only guy who's really going to possibly the slim chance of making them a championship contender and will a training camp and another offseason for a young guy like that make it happen i don't think so i think they're going to blow it up i think uh you know kobe showed his uh disdain of Pau gasol in the press conference after game four where he said i was going to pick it up and Pau did pick it up in game five but at the same time he didn't pick it up enough and he doesn't show it every night and uh i think it, it shows that there just isn't enough passion on that team. Um, Andrew Bynum doesn't show up all the time. And, uh, you know, that's a huge problem. He goes from being possibly the best center in the NBA to, you know, a very average center like he did yesterday with four rebounds, zero blocks, uh, only taking 10 shots, not boxing out, allowing the, the Thunder, the smallest Thunder, to get 13 offensive rebounds. So I think they got to go get a perimeter player to help out Kobe. Because, you know, Kobe, in this series, you sort of mentioned, they're up seven in game two. 2.45 left, they lost. They're up 12 with 8 minutes left in Game 4, they lost. They lost two huge games, two big leads, and unfortunately the offense becomes a little stagnant. Ramon Sessions can't take it to the rim like he should be, even though he's got the speed. Kobe Bryant does his pump, pump, pump fake, and the whole the entire defense knows, so he kind of has to need some help on the perimeter. And I think he will trust another player. I don't think he's that stubborn that he needs to take every shot. Uh, but sometimes it becomes difficult to throw it into a, a pal, but more so an Andrew Bynum who works down low on the block. And you get a good defender like a Kendrick Perkins in the Thunder Series who's fronting and, and jumping all over the place. So sometimes that becomes a little difficult. You need another guy in the perimeter to get the ball and create. So they've got to go get somebody, and I think they'll be willing. They would be willing to trade Pau Gasol. I mean, the report was earlier this season that they had a three-way deal ready to go for Chris Paul. That got right. made by the league. Because uh, David Stern said so, um, so I think they go get some assistance there on the perimeter, and Powell would be the trade chip. I mean, is is Powell another? He's another year older, so will they be getting back last Well, They're not going to get Chris Paul anymore, but I do think they go make a change, and they're they're ready to to move Powell Gasol like they were, you know, six or seven months ago. All right, I, I want to ask you a couple questions about Spurs and Thunder, but I want to ask you one more thing before we get to that, and that is just that the Clippers' season is over. They won around in the playoffs this year. seems like the organization took a step forward. It was Blake Griffin's second season. Uh, just how do you rate Griffin in terms of his maturation from year one to year two? What kind of a grade would you give this past season, and where do you see him in his evolution into becoming, you know, a really good player into a, a, a true NBA superstar, which I, I believe he has that potential. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I'd mark it a B or B minus. 
Um, you know, he really worked on his game in the offseason, apparently. That's what he was telling Bill Simmons on his podcast. And we were in L.A., and that's, that's where he works out during the offseasons as well. And, you know, I was tooting his horn back then, and I was, I was jacked to hear that he was working on his three-point shot. Um, so I was really excited to, say, to see what he came into his second season with. But it's a second season. You know, we can't expect him to be a superstar yet. But it, it's amazing that he can he can go twenty plus, ten plus rebounds without having any sort of polished offense move. He he doesn't have a great post game. He struggles with bigger players, uh, and he doesn't have a great jumper from the outside. He just has a hell of a lot of athleticism, and he can finish from you know five to seven feet uh, from the bucket just because he can jump over people and and you know sort of move around them and uh, throw it up. and And he's great at it. At the same time, he's got to get better. And I loved watching him actually in this postseason in their two playoff series where they beat the Grizzlies and, and then lost to the Spurs there, uh, you know, he was being smarter. He, he would usually, like in the first couple of games of the, of the Grizzlies series, he'd kind of just turn around and chuck it up. Um, but he was getting smart. He wasn't just throwing it up like that in later games in that series. He was using his, his smarts, his size, a few pump fakes here, a couple jab steps here. He was just getting better in the post because he didn't really trust his perimeter game. Then he started going by guys on the perimeter and showing that, you know, he was going to take advantage of his advantage, which is speed. So I saw him getting better in these first two rounds. And again, he's a 20 plus, 10 plus guy without having anything really established. So the post moves are coming. You saw them developing. You saw him getting smarter. Uh, uh, the jump shot's got to come at some point. It, it doesn't look good. He still releases it while he's descending, like after his peak, and it's not pretty. He's got to get better at that, and he's got to work at that. Um, and, you know, this was the first season with Chris Paul uh, as well. Right. So, you know, without a real training camp, you got to throw that in there because that's that's really important. Um, so I, I'm happy that, you know, with the way he's evolved even in year two, uh, you know, again, he's still so young. So seeing what he's doing now, um, I'm not worried about him not becoming a superstar. I think he will get there. Sportscasters are here with Tass Mellis of uh, the Basketball Jones podcast. Yeah, you said you said it right. You sounded like you were worried that you weren't going to say it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Woohoo! Uh, I think I got it right in the beginning too. Maybe. Uh, you so, did. Uh, you did. Yes, I'm two for two. That's that's great. Uh, one thing I didn't get right last time you were on is I kept calling poor Oklahoma City, Oklahoma State. Uh, but <laughs> they straightened me out uh, in their in their great run to the conference finals here, and we've been saying people have been saying things like this is the NBA finals. I guess the way I want to ask you this is: if Oklahoma City wins this series, what went right? If San Antonio wins this series, what went right? Good question. Um, I think uh, Oklahoma City seems like they need a comeback. Um, from behind a couple times in the series. So I think if they win, they're going to end up just steamrolling uh, the, the Spurs who are going to be up you know, midway through the fourth. Happened twice with the Lakers, happened with the Mavs as well, uh, where both those teams were up, sometimes double digits in the fourth, and then a barrage of, of Durant running up the floor, sealing the ball, you know, uh, setting up three, three feet behind the three-point arc and hammering it home, and Westbrook and Harden just stealing it and taking to the rack, and all of a sudden they're on a 12-0 run, tied his turn, and they win a game. I think that's got to happen one or two times against the Spurs. Um, will it? I don't think so. Uh, I think the Spurs are just are just too great. Um, basically, those three guys, though, uh, that 
I mentioned there for the Thunder, had their best game in Game 5 against the Lakers. Their only game in the series where they all shot above 50%. Uh, they all had their best game at the same time. Does that bode well for Round 3? I think so. Um, I, I think that's they're, they're rolling at the same time. So if they win... Those three guys have to be going um, because the Spurs are going to score better than the Lakers, are going to score better than the Mavs. They're incredible on the offensive end right now. Anyone who calls them boring is stupid because they're just spectacular watching them right now. So they're going to score a lot of points. I don't care how good the Thunder defense is. Um, so I think the Thunder just have to come back a few times. And if the Spurs are going to win, I mean, they kind of just have to limit those guys a little bit. If one of those guys has an off game, um, they're probably in good shape with the way they're scoring the basketball and the way the Thunder don't really have good production from any other spots. Uh, they just can't rely on, on Serge Ibaka. I mean, he's going to you know, bang home 12 or 14, but that's on a good night. And, and there's just not a lot of production otherwise on that team. So uh, I think that's the case. I mean, they, those guys just have to score a ton because the Spurs are going to score no matter what. Um, and the Spurs, you know, Greg Popovich, as you mentioned, has got all the time in the world to sit at home and uh, create a master plan for, uh, you know, siphoning those guys sort of towards the baseline like they were doing Chris Paul in round two, uh, you know, having a nice long Danny Green against Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard, even one of one of those guys is going to match up nicely with Kevin Durant. So I like the Spurs in this series, but uh, it's going to be fun to watch those big three try and do it for the Thunder. You know, the Spurs have scored over 100 points in, in just about, I think, every game but two. Do the Thunder have to try to outscore the Spurs, or do the Thunder need to try to play it in the you know in the mid eighties to nineties to win this? Well, they've got to they've got to slow them, the Spurs down. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can you can let them score hundred points and expect to win uh, because you know the the three of them combined for seventy points. I'm talking about the Thunder's big three there, uh, and they barely got over hundred points uh, in Game Five. And that was their best game of the series, like I said. Um, so they're going to have to slow the Spurs. And uh, you know how do you do that? I think they'll have a really good match for Tim Duncan, um, which will help. You know, Tim Duncan was beating DeAndre Jordan in the last series. Uh, DeAndre Jordan just doesn't have the footwork uh, to handle Tim Duncan, just can't do it. Um, so, you know, they'll have a good matchup. Probably Kendrick Perkins will be on him, who just did a great job on Andrew Bynum. Um, they've got to slow the Spurs down, uh, and the Spurs just know how to get out on those huge runs, kind of like the Thunder do. And, and I think the Thunder... Um, they just know how to handle end of quarters better than the, than the Clippers or the Jazz and the Spurs have played. They just they'll just be there for longer periods of time, and they they'll just kind of slow those runs down. Because what happens with the Spurs is they just go on a you know twenty to four run, and and that's it. And good night. I mean, they they get so much scoring from everywhere, so they got to slow them down a little bit. All right, two last quick things. I want to ask you one thing about Durant, one thing about Duncan. Let's start with Durant. We talked about how LeBron had that game in 2007 against the Pistons where he kind of elevated himself to a level that there's no one else in the world who could have done it at that time. Does, does, if the Thunder are going to pull this off and beat the Spurs, is it maybe going to be about Durant taking his game to a spot where almost no one else in the world can take it? That's a good question. I think those those three guys they'll almost have the capability of doing that. I know that sounds crazy to say, but Westbrook Harden and Durant can, and Durant probably more so than anybody else. Um, you're right about that. I mean, because because LeBron was just going one on five in that game and just chucking from 27 feet. Uh, I remember one three pointer where you know he's kind of falling out of bounds there and 
and he still dropped it. And Durant has that ability. Um, if they're going to beat the Spurs, I mean, they just—he has to be extremely steady. Uh, and I think all three of them kind of do, um, because the Lakers—the Lakers were close again to winning two games in that series. Uh, so Durant has to be extremely great. I mean, it's kind of hard to say, you know, if if they're going to need a, you know, a 38, 39 point performance. Uh, I mean, they're going to need those three guys to contribute a lot. Um, the thing is with the Spurs. They're going to be ready. They're going to be ready. I think they're going to have to play. The Thunder are going to have to play those guys heavy minutes because the more they play together, the harder they are to defend. I know that sounds simple, um, but the Spurs, again, did a masterful job on Chris Paul. If James Harden is out there playing with four bench guys, um, you know, or, or any other guys besides Durant and Westbrook, the Spurs will have a game plan for it. So I think the more they play together, I think you saw uh, Scotty Brooks do it against the Lakers, fourth quarter. Um, Westbrook and Durant started the quarter. That's it. I mean, you're just playing your guys. And, and as you mentioned, everybody's getting rest right now. So uh, you're going to see a lot of each of those two. Or all the big players in this series probably play more. Last thing, we had uh, Chris Ballard on the show last week of SI. And I don't know if you got a chance to read his his great feature on Tim Duncan that was in the magazine last week. But really, oh, yeah, def- definitely did. We talked about it, actually, on our, uh, our Grand Line podcast. Yeah, I-, I thought it was great. And um, the thing that I took away from it more than anything was the fact that for 15 years, Tim Duncan has the best winning percentage of any 15-year period in the history of the NBA. And number two is a 15-year run that Magic Johnson had with the Lakers. I think that we do a bad job sometimes when we're talking about Duncan and putting him in the in the upper upper echelon of superstar. And when you have a guy who's won three titles, right, and has four titles, four titles. Four titles excuse me, four titles, and has had the best winning percentage in a 15-year period in the history of basketball, in your opinion and I really respect your, your basketball mind, your basketball opinion, is is he a Mount Rushmore basketball player? How close is he to that level? Like, where is he? Like, put his legacy in perspective, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask in a vaulted way. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but I think you can. You can put him on Mount Rushmore, sure. Uh, I mean, he's arguably, uh, he gets clouded um, because of his position, quote-unquote position, because people want to call him, a power forward when he really is a center, um, and because he, you know, he sort of had a bigger body playing beside him than most centers would. He's no doubt, in my mind, the best power forward of all time. If you know, ahead of Carmelo, and I know Carmelo didn't win, so it's kind of easier to say that. Um, but even your McHale's or, or whoever you want to call him, but he is a center. So how did he get ranked there? I mean, he's he's on par with with, with everybody. I mean, with Russell. Um, uh, I think he's a better player than Shaq. Um, you know, they both won their four. Uh, we'll see if, if Duncan can do, uh, you know, one up him with five. Um, uh, Akeem Olajuwon is a great debate there, but uh, he's right there with, with all of them. And I, I know it, it's it's just it's difficult to, to measure eras, but he's the most productive basketball player of this era. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, I'd, it's kind of hard to compare positions to, but... He's more of a rock than Kobe Bryant uh, to me. Um, you know, he got every 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 superstar needs to get help, and and he and Kobe kind of has a bit of an asterisk beside him 
in a lot of people's minds because you know Shaq was there with him for three, um, and they'll they'll say that it was his team for the final two. But either way, I mean, I know Duncan is sort of unspectacular and, and doesn't have the endorsements and doesn't have the sort of limelight that other guys do. But he's got four four solid rings. Um, he ain't done. He could easily get a fifth. Uh, and I mean, he's the backbone of that team. So uh, I think also what what doesn't get sort of graded with him is, is his defense um, because he is a very, very good defender, and I know he's sort of even dropped off a little bit as far as defense goes. But, you know, I, I'm not really good at, at kind of grading guys and, and how they rank all time because, you know, it's kind of hard to say that. I mean, I, I just, I've never seen a lot of these guys play. Um, but of our era, you know, post-Jordan, um, I don't think there's there isn't a better player. I mean, who would you compare him with? Kobe, who's obviously in another position, but that's about it. I mean, and, and his teammates. I mean, I, I think that I think it's 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 Duncan as the best player, you know, of the last fifteen years, you know, sort of as as the percentages say. And uh, you know, I'm always in his corner because I, you know, I like his mo, I like his mentality of just saying to reporters, you know, screw off. Like I'm going to be my live sort of my life, and you know, as Chris Ballard put it on SI, um, you know, just kind of keep his personal life aside from his basketball life and having met him a few times, the guy is a funny, funny guy. You know, he's got a real dry sense of humor, uh, but he doesn't really share it with the media that much because he just doesn't care to. Uh, I'm sure Greg Popovich is kind of the same guy, you know, and uh, uh, I'm really happy for him, so I kind of want to see him do it again because just to rub it in people's faces, just to have, you know, as you mentioned, that Mount Rushmore, sort of those credentials to have, you know, the big number five beside it to be better than Shaq, who may have talked more than Tim Duncan, uh, but you know Tim Duncan, more the more effective player I would say on both ends, um, and uh, the both ends you know combined I, I would say there's no doubt he's the best era or the best player of our era. Well, there it is the 30 solid minutes on the NBA playoffs that you guys have been asking me for. Uh, it's T, it's it's ass with a T is how he tells me to say it. Tass Mellis, <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at T A S. M-E-L-A-S. Uh, the podcast is called The Basketball Jones. I was listening to some of that, and I guess you got to pick up your softball game a little bit, huh, buddy? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been having a little rough time to start the year. There's no doubt about that. Um, the guys uh, guys are in preseason mode right now, but uh, I've lined up a couple tournaments for the guys to get them uh, get them in game shape. We'll whip them around a little bit. And uh, the Rounders softball season, thanks for listening, uh, is going to get a lot better. You can tune in for Rounders updates every Friday on our overdose. <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, the podcast is on the Grantland Podcast Network every Friday. You can also find it on thescore.com. Um, anything else uh, to point our listeners into the right direction that I missed? Uh, no, yeah, thescore.com slash tbj is our, uh, our blog, uh, which has daily posts, hilarious posts from our writer, Trey Kirby. Uh, our daily show is there. Um, and it's also on YouTube and iTunes. And then Friday, uh, our daily show, Monday, Thursday, is a video show. Fridays, it's an audio show, but you can subscribe, audio or video, whichever one you like, on uh, iTunes, and uh, subscribe on YouTube as well. And uh, I think we're going to have a, a cool video for the draft lottery. We like to do little short-form videos. Um, the draft lottery is next weekend, or next week, I should say. Um, last year, we successfully predicted the winner of the draft lottery was going to be the Cats. Wow. I stood in a shower. We had an industrial fan blow up the little uh, sort of leaflets of the logos of all the teams. I picked out a Cleveland Cavaliers one from midair, 
and they won. So we're going to do it again, another very scientific experiment. So you can see that video uh, next week, probably uh, Tuesday, the day before the uh, draft lottery. And we'll have uh, lots of videos throughout the summer as well. We don't die. I mean, we're, we're always around at the basketball drones. All right, well, I hope I uh, hung with you a little bit better than I did last time. I don't think I called anyone by their you know, college football equivalent this time. So thanks a lot for doing it. We really appreciate it. Okay, man, no problem at all. Thanks a lot. Thanks, bud. All right, we got to thank Tass Mellis for being on the podcast today. Some serious basketball talk there. Hope you enjoyed it. Okay, next piece of business on the show today. We mentioned last week that we are planning a podcast in June. And uh, if I bring up my calendar here, I can give you the date. The date of this podcast is going to be June 5th. It's going to be our first show in the month of June. And that day, we are going to... A couple things. One, Albert Chen from Sports Illustrated is going to make his debut on the podcast. And he's going to talk to us about some columns that he's written for the magazine about Matt Kemp and a couple other baseball stuff. So we're going to do that. That's kind of a separate thing. But that's booked. I thought I'd tell you about it. The focus of the rest of the podcast is going to be kind of a – we're going to do this each year. It's going to be kind of a year in review of the book club. Right. Uh, We have a book club book of the month. And I guess the schedule for the book club is going to be June to June from now on. And the reason we're going to cut it off there is because June, I think, is the ultimate month for the sports book because Father's Day is that month and it makes a great gift for Father's Day. Sure. And during the, the only other obvious spot to do this would be December and January. But during that time, it's football, it's football playoffs, it's, there's a lot more going on. And in the summer where there's a little less, lends a perfect opportunity to do this. All right. So here's the first thing. The book club... Book of the month, book of the year is Sweetness by Jeff Perlman. And uh, Jeff Perlman is going to be on that day to talk with us about sweetness and take a bow, so to speak, collect his award. <laughs> I'm sure he'll thank God and his parents and uh, and thank us for that. But uh, Jeff Perlman will be on the show to talk about sweetness, talk about the other sports books he's written. He's written a whole handful, of really, a bunch of really good ones. One about the New York Mets, 1986 World Championship team. One about the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. Also one about Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. So he's got a bunch of great sports books. We're going to talk to Jeff about that. But the other thing we want to do that day is we want to give a bunch of books away. And the way we're going to do it is we're just going to ask you to email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com, between now and June 5th. And that day we're going to pick out some names and let you know what book you won. Now, when you email us, you can either just email us and tell us you're interested in a book, or you can email us and give me the top three books that you're interested in winning, and we'll try to match it up as best we can. But here's what we got to give away, and we got a bunch. We got a ton. We have a book called The Ball, Discovering the Object of the Game by John Fox. Uh, That book, um, uh, John is going to be honest to talk about that book next week. Um, so you'll learn more about what it is and why you might want to read it next week on the podcast. But uh, we do have that. Also, we have, as mentioned in the last segment, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funny Ride Through Baseball in America in the Swinging 70s. Uh, Also, as mentioned in the last segment, we have 
Mark Cram Jr.'s Like Any Normal Day to give away. Um, also, we have uh, Chris Ballard's One Shot at Forever, uh, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and A Magical Baseball Season. We have a paperback copy of uh, one of the biggest sports books of the last of my memory, really, and that's James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. ESPN, those guys have all the fun ES, inside the world of ESPN. We have a paperback version of that book. And we also have uh, a copy of the Book Club Book of the Month from, I think, March. Uh, Don't Put Me In, Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bunch. <laughs> Two more. We will have a copy of the Book Club Book of the Month, Book of the Year, Sweetness, to give away. And we will also have, maybe as a grand prize, an autographed copy of Death to the BCS, courtesy of our buddy Jeff Passan, who is going to join us in the middle of June, uh, right before the Major League Baseball All-Star break, to talk about Major League Baseball. So, if you want to win the ball, or the book about plastic grass and baseball in the 1970s, or Like Any Normal Day by Mike Cram Jr., or Chris Ballard's One Shot at Forever, or Those Guys Have All the Fun, or Mike Titus's book, or sweetness, or an autographed copy of Death to the BCS, please email us between now and June 5th at thesportscasters at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to win, and we'll try to match it up. We're going to take all the emails, and we're just going to kind of sort through them, and uh, we'll pick out as many names as we have books, and then we'll see if we can match up the winners to the books that they want. We'll do the best that we can with that. And... um, that's what we're going to do. So uh, Yeah, get your emails in. Get your emails in, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You could also, uh, if you forget that, you can tweet us, sports underscore casters, but I'm just going to redirect you to the email there anyway. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with uh, Jeff Benedicts. Our next guest is from New London, Connecticut, and is a graduate of Eastern Connecticut State University. He went on to earn a master's degree at Northeastern University and then studied law at the New England School of Law. He is the author of nine books and over 50 articles. His writing has been the basis of feature segments on 60 Minutes, HBO's Real Sports, and the Discovery Channel. He is a contributor for Sports Illustrated and has had articles published in the New York and Los Angeles Times. He is a public speaker, a regular commentator on news networks, and a cable and television program commentator. He is also a professor of English at Southeastern Virginia University. A warm sportscaster's welcome to a true renaissance man of the 21st century, Jeff Benedict. How are you doing tonight, Jeff? Sorry, that's, it's Southern Virginia University. I think I said Southeastern because you've got a lot of Eastern universities <laughs> in, in your bio there uh how are you doing tonight i'm doing well it's uh, good to be on your show Thank yeah we really ap- we really appreciate you coming on you know uh i kind of we usually record the show well we record most of the show on tuesdays and uh the great thing about the ipad and sports illustrated being on the ipad is that 
when the clock ticks from Tuesday at 11.59 to Wednesday at midnight, I can download the latest issue of the magazine, not have to wait until I wake up in the morning on Thursday when it usually comes in the mailbox. And I was doing that last week, and as it was downloading, and I, I was checking out your cover, and the words really kind of caught my eye, the best high school basketball player since LeBron James. And I can remember LeBron James as a high school basketball player. There's not a lot of players who have been in the NBA as long as LeBron has now that I can remember being high school basketball players. But you really remember that about LeBron because of the profile that he had and the documentary that they did. So it really caught my eye right from the beginning. And I guess I want to ask you, do you really, I mean, this isn't just hyperbole, right? I mean, you really believe that Jabari Parker is the best high school basketball player since LeBron James? Well, actually, it probably doesn't matter what I believe. What what matters more is the uh, <clears throat> what the scouts, the college scouts and pro scouts believe because they're the, the real experts who spend their, their careers analyzing these players. And they're the ones who believe that and who say that. Uh, in fact, I had uh, one of the, I think one of the most respected scouts in the country uh, who's seen both of these guys play uh, more than most say that he thinks that Jabari is is probably a little ahead uh, of where LeBron was at that time. And uh, interestingly, just before our story came out, Derek Rose said on television that uh, he thinks Jabari is ahead of where he was um, at the time Derek was at Simeon Academy. So, I think, you know, some of the more respected players and scouts think that and say that of Jabari. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people took to that, 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 that those words there, and it seemed like right away there was a lot of buzz on Twitter and on the Internet kind of debating that fact, and that had to be great for the article, huh? Yeah, it was, uh, and it's funny because, honestly, when I was writing the piece, uh, and I spent a long time on this piece and a lot of time with Jabari and people around Jabari, I wasn't thinking that much about the comparisons between him and other players, um, but it, you know, you can't help but but notice the fact that really, if you look at Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, there's this this trilogy of great NBA players who were known throughout the country when they were in high school, and that's that in itself is rare. And all three of those guys went on to have extraordinary careers in the NBA, and then along comes Jabari Parker, who unlike those three, is not going to be able to be drafted out of high school because of the new NBA rule. And, um, and so he, But I think he belongs in, in a category of elite players. And you know, watching him play is just, um, I mean, it's a pleasure. It's not like watching a high school kid play. You know, probably one of the reasons you weren't spending so much time thinking about that as you're writing the article is because of what is written on the cover below his name and that, that there's yeah. something more important to him than his stardom, and that's his faith. And, and a lot about the article is about his faith. And it, and it got me thinking about Dwight Howard a little bit, who was maybe another one of those last really good uh, high school basketball players who uh, talked a lot about his faith as the process was playing out and he was entering into the NBA. I remember him saying his goal in basketball was going to be to get the, the logo changed to, to Christ. But what's unique about Benedict is that his faith is, is, is Mormon, and, and that's pretty unique for his race, right? For Jabari, yeah, it, it is. Uh, he, there are about 6.2 million Mormons in the United States, and about 200,000, a little under 200,000 of those 
are, are African Americans, um, which is more than most people think. Um, but you know, Jabari is clearly a minority uh, on that front, and in the city of Chicago, even more so. And Chicago is a huge city; not a lot of Mormons in that city. But uh, his his family uh, is they're active practicing Mormons. Uh, his mother, his brother and sisters, uh, and even his dad, Sonny, who's not a Mormon. Uh, goes to the Mormon Church with them on a weekly basis, and is pretty much a part of the church. You know, and, it's a, and very much oh, at home there. Okay, sorry to cut you off, but I was thinking. You know, there's a lot of things that come to mind when when someone says Mormon. You know, there's the uh, the issue of polygamy. A lot of people still lump that with the Mormon faith, and right. You know, I Tom Verducci and I were talking recently about Matt Kemp and how Major League Baseball has an opportunity with. Uh, an African-American superstar in a huge market like Los Angeles and a chance to maybe uh, market uh, camp and, and increase baseball in, in the, in the African-American communities. And when I was reading this, I was thinking about Parker and how he has a unique opportunity to kind of erase some of the stereotypes about his religion. And, and, and if he's going to be as big of a star as LeBron James, and that's yet to be seen, of course, he's going to have the platform to maybe – erase some of those stereotypes or get people thinking a different way about the Mormon religion. Yeah, and you know, I think that's a good observation. And the, the fact of the matter is, one of the things I enjoyed about working on this story so much is, this, is seeing the fact that he's already doing that. As a teenager in the city of Chicago, most people who know Jabari in Chicago know that he's a practicing Mormon. And uh, when people first find out, they're shocked. In fact, I had one uh, you know, prominent sports journalist in Chicago who's been covering Jabari for a while say that all of us were shocked when we first found out. But, but now that we know and we see the way he lives and that he's, you know, he really epitomizes what Christianity stands for, but he does it quietly. He's, he's not going to you know, salute when he dunks and he doesn't do te- you know, a Tim Tebow every time he scores. He's very quiet about his religion. He just lives it. And people in Chicago love that. It's He's a kid who doesn't wear his religion on his sleeve, but he practices it in the way he treats people. You know, he won't be the first Mormon to be a superstar athlete. You kind of mentioned in a, in a, in a subpart in the piece about uh, Danny Ainge and uh, Steve Young, maybe the most famous of them. Uh, yep. There's this issue of the mission, which is a, is a big part of the article, which really fascinated me. There's uh, a, 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 many Mormons after their freshman year of college go on a two-year mission. And that could be something that could stand away, stand in the way of, of Parker and a long career in the NBA. Maybe he could do it and still have a great career. Uh, some players have. Um, but I wonder, do you, have a, do you have a sense at all after all the time you spent with him if, if he's going to do a mission? Or is that something that's really not decided yet? Well, first of all, I think that the family, Jabari and his family wouldn't see it as an obstacle to his NBA career. Um, now, that doesn't mean he's going to go, but I mean, I think the way they see the, the mission is uh, the, missing, the mission is a privilege and an opportunity to go away for two years like a lot of Mormon boys and girls do, um, but it, you're not required to go. In other words, you're not forced, and you mentioned Steve Young and Danny Ainge, two prominent Mormon athletes who chose not to go, and then we also mentioned in the article Chad Lewis on the Eagles and Sean Bradley from the 76ers who did walk away from the game for two years to go and then came back and played. It's, it's too early to know what Jabari's going to do, but what's clear is that he's, he's thinking seriously 
about the decision now. I don't, I'm not saying he's thinking seriously of going. I say he's thinking seriously about the decision. In other words, he understands the significance of it, and I think he's got two years to figure it out. Um, but right now, he's barely 17. He's got a senior year ahead of him. He's not even done with his junior year. And uh, so there's plenty of time for him to decide, but there's no bad choice for him. If he goes, um, you know, he, he serves his conscience that way. If he doesn't go, I think because of who he is and the way he lives his life, um, he'll do uh, great things uh, regardless. And so it's nice for a kid in his shoes to have options. You know, I was doing some research before I called you about Jabari, looking at some stuff on the Internet, and I, I stumbled upon a recruiting site. And they were because this is probably the next big decision that's facing him, even before deciding about the mission. That's going to be what college to go to. Maybe years yeah. ago, maybe years ago, like LeBron, he would have just went to the NBA, but that option isn't right. available now. Um, right. And it was really funny because there was this one recruiting page. It had his name, and then it had you know a list of interested schools, and there was at least forty. <laughs> I'm, I'm not exaggerating. There's like a list of forty schools that have made offers. Uh, does he have a short list at all? I mean, you've spent a lot of time with him. Is is, is that a decision that it, he seems like someone who really thinks about what he does, the way you've described him? Is, yeah. is he narrowing it down at all? I mean, because that's going to be the next big thing, right? Yeah, it is. That's And that's a decision that he has said he will make uh, over the summer. And uh, for him, summer hasn't technically started because the school year is not quite over. But he's going to make the decision over the summer, and he has indicated that he'll announce the decision in the fall um, and so right now, uh, I wouldn't say he's looking seriously at 40 schools, but I was with him last week, uh, in New York and he was asked that question and he named, uh, 10 schools and there, there probably are a couple others that he's looking at, but he did rattle off 10 and, uh, the 10 that he mentioned were, most of them were the ones you would expect, uh, Duke and Kansas and Michigan state, North Carolina uh, Illinois, uh, those schools. Um, but, you know, he really hasn't made the decision. And I was respectful while working with him on this, not to press that, because it was clear from day one that that decision wouldn't be made before the article came out. So there really wasn't a big point in, in harping on it too much. You know, we've made a lot of comparisons uh, about Jabari in the 10 minutes that we've been talking. You know, we, we've talked about uh, some some other Mormon athletes and, and the way they've decided to, to go on a mission or not. We talked about how he's the best potentially high school basketball player since LeBron James. We talked about how him and Derek Rose went to the same high school. Who do you compare him to on the court? You've seen him play. What, can we get yeah. a, a, a picture of what kind of player he is? Sure. I, I can give you a couple of plays that I think really show you what he's like. I mean, I to me, he, he reminds me of... Uh, he reminds me of Oscar Robertson uh, in, in one very simple way, and that is Jabari has a, an unbelievably quick first step. Um, and if you think of his size and, and his build, um, he, he is very difficult to guard outside the three-point line because not only can he shoot the three very effectively, and he's so tall and he's got such long arms that it's, it's almost impossible to block but he can put the ball down on the floor and go left or right in either direction. And that first step is so quick and so long that um, players can't keep up with him out there. If you put a tall guy out there, he blows by him really easy. If you put a quick guard out there who might have good foot speed, Jabari's just too tall, and he can shoot yeah. over the top of him. So 
Um, but one play that I just can't get out of my mind from watching him play was during the regular season, and uh, he caught the ball on the low post. He's a really good post player. He caught the ball on the low post on the block, and as soon as he did, the defense collapsed on him. Jabari turned to the baseline, and when he did, he, he got pushed, uh, and there were actually three defenders that surrounded him. He really had nowhere to go. He was practically falling out of bounds. And then he flipped the ball over his shoulder and hit a cutter, a teammate, who was coming down the lane completely wide open, hit him with it, and the kid just made an easy layup. And it just reminds you of that famous play where, where Larry Bird is trapped under the basket and he flips the ball to Cedric Maxwell um, in the playoffs. And that he, he is that kind of player. Of course, the difference between him and Larry Bird is uh, this kid can jump. And uh, he, he, can, he really can sky when he's inside the lane. And a lot of times you, when you see kids, even NBA players, who are 6'9", 6'8", 6'9", and they're very good perimeter players, those players often tend to be weak inside. And Jabari's not weak inside. He, he's a force inside. Um, and that's what makes him so difficult to guard. The Sportscasters are here with Jeff Benedict. He is the author of the cover story on the most recent issue of Sports Illustrated. Uh, it's about Jabari Parker, the best high school basketball player since LeBron James. Um, you can find Jeff on Twitter. He's at Author Jeff. Uh, he also has a website, which is uh, jeffbenedict.com. Uh, we only got a, a minute or so left. Jeff, but I, I mentioned off the top that you're somewhat of a renaissance man of the 21st century. You, you teach, you, you public speak, you write articles for SI, you also write books. Um, is there, t- tell us a little bit about you, know, you as a writer and, and what motivates how, – how do you find a story for SI? Like, what are the things that interest you and what motivates you to write? Well, it's, it depends what, who I'm writing for, but with the magazine in particular, I like to do stories that um, I don't think of them as sports stories, although we're a sports magazine. But this story and the one I did before it about a kid from Compton, California, uh, who lives in one of the most gang-infested neighborhoods in America and yet has made it through high school without getting involved in a gang or being victimized by a gang, and, it, and he has a great family in an African-American community, that story and this story, I think, one of the things I liked about them was they, they sort of undermine easy stereotypes that we form about people and groups. Uh, that story about Compton and gangs, you know, turned what stereotypes there are on their head. And so did this story about a, a young African-American Mormon who's a superb basketball player from inner city Chicago. And, and in, along the way, you, hopefully you entertain the reader and uh, really hold their attention with interesting storytelling. And that's what I try to do for the magazine. I think that's why one of the reasons Sports Illustrated is such a phenomenal magazine is because the back of the book every week typically has these terrific stories that run six to eight pages. And that's, I just try to be one of the people who contributed to that tradition. One last thing, Jeff. You mentioned the, uh, the bonus pieces in SI and, and how great they can be. Last week we had Chris Ballard on the show who uh, recently had one of his bonus pieces expand into a bigger book. And you're a guy who uh, writes, writes magazine stories and writes books. Has there ever been one that, that uh, started as a mas- magazine article that you could see kind of moving into more of a book, something that might uh, involve more research, more time? You know, uh, w- Maybe if you haven't had one specifically, could you see yourself maybe – or do you think about that, you know, as you're writing an article? Hmm, maybe this could be more. Maybe this could, could take the next jump. 
the ten the ten books that I've written, and actually it's eleven because I just finished one that hasn't come out yet. But the, those eleven, none of them grew out of a magazine story. Um, but uh, the, the book that I'm writing now, that I that I just started about six months ago, and I'm writing with a colleague of mine from CBS named Armin Katayan. Um, the idea grew out of a story we did for Sports Illustrated a year ago um, on college football. And so that, that one, I wouldn't say the magazine story, you know, grew into a book, but working on the magazine story gave us ideas that eventually germinated into a book um, that we're working on today. And so, but I do think magazine stories are great uh, material for books in many instances. Um, I, and certainly anytime I'm working on something that's less than a book, I do think about, you know, what other prospects could there be uh, for these stories. All right. Uh, the writer is Jeff Benedict. Uh, again, the website is www.jeffbenedict.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Author Jeff. And on the cover of uh, this past uh, Sports Illustrated with his fantastic article about Jabari Parker. Jeff, thank you very much for taking some time uh, to uh, talk to us about it. We really appreciate it. It was a privilege. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Jeff Benedict for making his debut on the podcast today. I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, Ask for the T from the Basketball Jones podcast and Kenny Albert uh, for making this a great show today. Don't forget about our big book club book giveaway on June 5th. Email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. I'm going to start doing some more with the Facebook page because Facebook made it easier for me by releasing an an app that you can actually control your like pages on your phone. You can make updates and things like that. That's cool. So they made it a lot easier for me to update the page, so I'm going to make an effort to do it more. So check us out, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. Give us a like over there. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we are at sports underscore casters. Our blogs are sportscasters.blogspot.com, sportscasters.tumblr.com. Find all that information at www.sports-casters.com. Next weekend, we have Mark Cram Jr. Um, and the author of The Ball. What did I say his name was? I forgot. Uh, but those two guys are going to be on, and something else will be planned as well. I think it will be Tim Layden to talk about the Triple Crown. Don't forget to check out our Football Nation podcast this week with Aaron Nagler. You can find that at www.footballnation.com. Uh, pick four, kind of the last piece of business today. I went three and one last week. I uh, had the game of the week, Thunder over the Lakers, 75, uh, 77-75. Also had the Devils over the Rangers in game two, three to two. And my pitcher, you Darvish, mowed down the A's four to one. My only loss was that I had the Kings sweeping the Coyotes and it didn't happen for me. Uh, they're going to have to win this in five, six, or seven. Brings my record in season two to forty-five and thirty-six. Uh, Don went two and two, winning the game of the week. Thunder over the Lakers and also the Devils over the Rangers. Uh, his pitcher Doug Fister and the Tigers lost to the Twins four to three, and he had the Thunder in a sweep. Lakers annoyingly won one game to yeah, make it five. Yeah. 
Uh, so we missed out there. Don, kick us off with the game of the week this week. All right, the game of the week again this week. Well, not again, but a uh, game that was picked last week by both of us, I believe, is the Devils at the Rangers. This is a game five, the pivotal game five. Uh, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC Sports Network. Uh, give me the Devils. I know it's a road game and that that maybe goes against what you conventional wisdom, but I think they rattled the Rangers a little bit. Uh, they got them off their game. The Devils have been kind of the steady eddies this playoffs, just kind of going about their business and winning big games. So I'll take the Devils tomorrow night. You know, really, I think this series the rest of the way is a coin flip. Sure. Uh, I mean, every every game with the Rangers has been. If you told me the Devils are going to win in six, it wouldn't surprise me. You told me the Rangers are going to win in six, it wouldn't surprise me. Then if you told me that one of those two teams was going to win in seven, that wouldn't surprise me either. Um, I think any of the four remaining outcomes for this series are in play and are just as likely to happen as any of the others. That's not exactly sage-like wisdom here, but (laughs) uh, I'm going to take the Rangers just because this is what the Rangers have done, right? They they win one game at home, then they win one game on the road, and then they win the last two home games uh, with losing the road game in between. I know they did it a little bit different in the uh, Ottawa series where they lost game five at home and had them win the the last two, but... Not for any great reason, I'm going to take the Rangers. All right, my pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Carlos Zambrano. Again, this should be way easier than it has been for me so far, so I'm going to hopefully go with a stud to get a win over a weak team in the Rockies. That game's tomorrow night, 7-10 Eastern time. Uh, the Marlins are at home, and I need to win. All right, I'm going to take Lance Lynn, 6-1 with a 2.31 ERA in the Cardinals over Jeff Supan, 2.2 with a 3 uh, ERA and the Padres. Uh, Lance Lynn, I think, I think is seven and one all time now in the major leagues, having a great season. So let's get him at home over what isn't a great Padres team. Not terrible, but not great. Cardinals have been really good this year, and so is Lance Lynn. See if he can get his seventh victory of the season. All right, my host choice this week is the Celtics at the 76ers. Again, I'm gonna. Go against conventional wisdom and take the road team. I'm going to take the Celtics. This game's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern on ESPN. I, I don't know why. I don't really have a good reason for this, but I'm going to take the Celtics on the road. Just I've, maybe the team that's been there. I have the same pick there as well, Celtics over the Sixers in game six. And my reasoning is because I think the Celtics broke the Sixers the other day. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that win was kind of the win that broke the back of the Sixers. Sixers have been on a great run, but... Let's not forget they beat the Bulls because the Bulls ran out of players. That's true. You know what I mean? So I don't know that the Sixers are as good of a team as they've looked in this playoffs. And I think that this is a respectable end to their season. They won a round, and then they won two games against the Celtics. Seems like a natural end for them, so I'm going to take the Celtics as well. All right, my bold prediction this week is about as bold as it can go because, I mean, I don't really even believe in it, but... They got a hot goalie, and anything can happen when you got a hot goalie. I'm going to say that the Western Conference Finals in the NHL goes to seven games, which basically means Phoenix has got to win the next two. The next two. All right, I'm going to make what I imagine is a very bold prediction. I'm going to say that Brad Richards will score the game-winning goal of the Eastern Conference Finals. Okay. So basically I need the Rangers to win the series. And I need Brad Richards to score the game-winning goal in the game that they win Decides the series. Decides it, right. And uh, I think Brad has been clutch in the most important yeah. moments this playoffs. He hasn't been necessarily great in some of the other moments. Like, he was pretty invisible yesterday. 
Uh, I thought him and Gabrick and Haglund in general. Haglund took some really dumb penalties, but I thought that line in general really struggled. And there was some talk during the broadcast that maybe they should break it up uh, at least for a little while yesterday. But I think, you know, they signed Brad Richards to be big in big spots, and that's what he's been so far. Uh, he was a third-round pick in uh, the 2004 draft on, and if you ever go back and look at the players that the Sabres picked instead of him in the first three rounds, <laughs> you're not going to be happy. The Sabres had three second-round picks that year. One of them was Norm Milley. Ooh. So uh, don't don't Ooh. look at that. Yeah, I won't. All right, that does it for today. It's been a great show. I want to thank Kenny Albert, Ass with a T, Jeff Benedict. Um, also, don't forget, Win some of our books. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. Join us next week. Mark Cram Jr. is going to be here to talk about his book. We'll do a bunch of other stuff. Don't forget to check out the Football Nation podcast, www.footballnation.com. Don, cue the mother effing hip. <laughs>